Our verse for this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 38 to 48. You have heard it. Is this? Yeah? Okay, good. <laughs> you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, as we start off today, uh, I want to ask the question, um, how do you resolve conflict? Um, when you get into a tiff, uh, you find yourself in an argument, a disagreement with your spouse, your children, co-worker, um, a stranger on the street. How do you resolve conflict? This is an essential heart check question for everyone, because just as a basic human being, we want to be peaceable people, but especially for the Christ follower, this is an important heart check question uh, because you could even say, I would go as far as even saying that one legit litmus test for the genuineness of a proclaimed Christian is how you resolve conflict. Um, so first, let's normalize everyone here, every human being that has come through history. Conflict is normal. Finding yourself in conflict is okay. To be Christian doesn't mean that you never find yourself in conflict. Conflict is normal, just as uh, it is human to err. Similarly, to find yourself in conflict is normal. But how we resolve conflict is what must and, and should distinguish us as Christ followers. So that said, um, generally speaking, I think there are those of us, when we approach conflict, we have a gavel. We're a judge, and we approach conflict with a gavel of self-indication. We have our own set of right and wrong, wherever that comes from, tradition, morals, religion, protocol, rules, wherever. And we come in with a sense of, I'm right, you're wrong, because of these, these reasons, and we judge, and we just lay out that judgment. For some of us, there's an instinctive reaction right in the moment. And oftentimes, it's not even a reason thing, it's just instinctive and it's to self-protect. And so you come out with your verbal guns, your verbal zingers, your, your just quick-witted blaming and, and shifting the blame on other people, uh, maybe insults and so forth to just bully the other person, and, but it's really reacting out of self-protection. Some of us uh, have a little bit more ability to take a step back, but 
really at the end of the day, there's still a base uh, dynamic going on. We're just there to self-preserve. We, we calculate quickly, okay, how can I come out of this more safely? How can I, okay, this person is upset because of this, so if I just sort of diffuse this situation, say this, then it'll calm them down. And, and your motive and your approach to conflict resolution is just really to calculate optimal self-preservation, right? And some of us, sadly, uh, the way we approach conflict is we, we absorb uh, by what I'll call self-humiliation. And I don't mean that as a good thing. I mean that as, as a negative thing, a bad thing, an unhealthy thing, where basically you become a doormat. In the name of selflessness, you basically just accommodate and you try to placate and appease whoever is there. But eventually what that becomes is abuse. That's the extreme form of it. Now all these ways, ultimately, sure, they might work to some degree, but I hope you're here today because you want to know more of what Jesus Christ offers and what the gospel offers. And what the gospel provides is both a, a unique motivation and means for conflict resolution to distinguish us as Christ followers. It's a unique motivation, not those selves that I just pointed out, but a uniquely different motivation that comes from outside of yourself. Not from within yourself, but something that comes from outside of yourself, a motivation and a means. I think that's what Jesus is getting at today in the verses that we read. It's basically in just contemporary terms about conflict resolution, but it's so important that we think through this and evaluate how we live this out in real ways in our real lives. So I offer the, this gist of a prayer as a summary of what I think Jesus is getting at, and I hope that you by faith can talk to God with these words or the gist of these words. Lord, when dealing with my quote-unquote enemies, and enemies is a whole spectrum. It could be your spouse that day. It could be your coworker. It could be whoever. It could be someone very egregiously, insidiously evil as well. But there's a whole spectrum. But when dealing with my quote-unquote enemies, remind me how you've dealt with me. If we could have that mindset approaching every situation of conflict, I think our lives would be much different. And so for the rest of today, what I want to ask is, and, and hopefully show you the answers from Jesus' teaching, is what does Jesus, Jesus want to teach us about dealing with our enemies, my enemies, your enemies? And I hope to show you three things from the passage. First, God's lovingly just heart. And the order there is very important, lovingly just. And then I think Jesus is going to point at our unjust and unloving hearts and show us how we're so different from God, how we've fallen so much from Him. But then finally, I think Jesus, He starts to point forward to His uh, justly loving heart. And I hope you notice that it's flipped, and we'll get to that. So first, God's lovingly just heart. Where do we see it? So we pick up in verse 38. Remember, this is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus uh, has started out just to roughly summarize. He started off bigger than life, these larger than life beatitudes and, and, and definitions of happiness. And then he has this inspirational paragraph to his people that you are the salt and light of the earth to inspire us to a certain mo uh, purpose and identity in life. And then he starts 
to talk about how this just deep fulfillment theology, how he's come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it all. But then he starts laying on the burdens, the, the, the pressure that we need to be perfect. We, our righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the religious leaders of the day who are near perfect outwardly. And then he begins to tackle everyday real issues. And he begins with anger, then adultery and lust, divorce, oaths. And so now we come here today to dealing with, in contemporary language, uh, conflict resolution. So as is his pattern, he first points to the OT law, the Old Testament law, a stipulation from the law that God provided through Moses. And so he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And this shows up in at least three places in the Old Testament. And so to show you one place from Leviticus chapter 24 and to show it to you in context, God instructs to his people Israel through Moses, if anyone injures his neighbor, and we know that neighbor in God's definition ultimately means anyone, anyone. If anyone injures anyone, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So this is where Jesus is getting that phrase. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. So I want you to notice a few things. First, I want you to notice that God's original law to his people for conflict resolution is exact equal retribution. The fairest justice as possible. To get back exactly what was taken from you. And so here is certainly the just part of God's lovingly just heart. The just part. God is giving permission to his people to take revenge. To, to get back. To get retribution. Just that's what it is. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. So here's the just part. If, if we're to just simply define justice, this is my best attempt at defining justice. It's two parts. First, there's some sense of rightness your definition of right and wrong, wherever that comes from, plus fairness, meaning you exact that rightness. You, you execute that rightness so that it's fair. That's why there's many different kinds of justice. There's something called street justice, right? There's, there's justice according to Canadian federal laws, et cetera, et cetera. There's justice according to your rule of law just in, in your daily life. But God certainly has his definition of justice, and we see it clearly. Now, something else I want you to notice is the law, not, not the Canadian law, but the law that God provided through Moses to his people, but also is there ultimately as a mirror for all of humanity. This law is predominantly offender-focused, meaning guilty party. You're going to hear me switch between offender a lot and offended, okay? So I hope you're able to track with me. But the law is predominantly, the way it's worded, the, the angle that it's approaching it from is from the perspective of the offender, meaning the focus is on the punishment. What is the due and just punishment for the offender? Just to show you, if anyone injures his neighbor, going back to Leviticus 24, the anyone here, the subject, is the offender, the, one, the guilty party, the one who's done wrong. As he, the offender, has done it, it shall be done to him, the offender. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye. So here's the just punishment. And so I want you to see that the subject, that the perspective that God is giving the law is how to punish. The focus is punishment. 
and on the offender. So maybe you're asking now, Albert, you said the lovingly just heart of God in all this. So where's the lovingly part? Now let me make it clear. I want to say on record, I love God's law. I love the Old Testament. And believe it or not, there is much of God's love, love just laced through his law. Yes, the focus, the primary overall emphasis of the Old Testament is God's justice, his holiness, his absolute holiness, and how we fall short of it. But even here in Leviticus 24, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth that Jesus is referring to, there is God's love in that. How you say, if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, he will do infinite times more for retribution. Is that what it says? No. See, God is limiting. God is limiting the retribution to, so that the punishment fits the crime. God is limiting our evil, broken human hearts from annihilating oneself, each other. He, he is preventing and lovingly preventing inordinate, disproportionate, nuclear-scale rage. I know even myself, I've been guilty at times of just, just snapping at people beyond what is necessary. Just ask my family. And, and so God here, he knows our hearts, and he's lovingly protecting the world, civilization, from annihilating themselves and calling for fair, equal retribution, a punishment that doesn't go beyond the crime. And that's God's love. And so what we, what we need to see when we look at God's law, we, what we need to see it as is, is sure, it might feel ominous, God's law, God's perfect standards and are falling short, but, but through those clouds, those gray, dark clouds, you see God's love breaking through. These little beams, these bright, focused laser beams of sunlight breaking through. It is fair to say that the law primarily paints a picture of God's just character. Yes, that is true. God must punish sin because he is perfectly holy and perfectly just. But nevertheless, nevertheless we, we see rays of God's love breaking through the dark clouds of justice when we see his compassion lining the law. And so Jesus, he wants to remind us as much when he points back to the law. First, yes, God is just, but there is some love there, but we can't forget that God is a just God. Now, all the more, Jesus wanting us to remember that God is just. Now he, he points out, he, he, he corners his listeners and says, not only is God just, but you, yourself, your heart, at the end of the day, you have an unjust and unloving heart. Where do we see this? Let's pick up in verse 43. And he says now, you have also heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What you need to understand is that that second part of that sentence there, and hate your enemy, it's not there in the original scriptures. It was added. The original scriptures, and now, so please notice, I'm going to show it to you in context. Going back to Leviticus 19, I hope you'll see God's just drenching love even in this passage within the law. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. 
And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. Why? You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, for the foreigner traveler wandering through their land. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. God is saying, reflect my loving character. Reflect my gracious character. Even in the law, God's love is so clear. Even in the midst of his, yes, his focused and spotlighted justice. And God goes on to instruct through Moses, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely. And he goes on to describe all these ways that we're meant to love one another, to treat one another rightly. Even speaking of fair wages, not to hold back wages from a hired worker and to deliver those that, that uh, deserve payment promptly. And he goes on how we should deal, uh, treat the blind compassionately, not to slander. And all this to conclude in verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Meaning God is so much about love and reconciliation that even amongst his people, he expects a healthy, fruitful God-reflecting conflict resolution and all this coming to the beautiful head in verse 18, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice it ends there. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't say, and hate your enemies. Even in the law, God clearly commands the opposite of hating your enemy. Even in the law, the, the, the just law, we see God's love so profoundly. So where did this phrase, and hate your enemy, come from then? Who added that phrase? Now when Jesus says, you have heard it said, it, it was a known fact. That was the Jewish ethic at that time. And, and where it came from were the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees. They had developed what was called their oral tradition. As they were trying to interpret God's law, they would begin to add layers and layers of of what they think is the right way to live out God's law. And so when it came to this golden rule, this, the second commandment that is as great as the first, to love your neighbor as yourself, at some point, what happened was they knew they, they, there's a seething resentment in their hearts towards certain people, towards foreigners perhaps, towards people in their neighborhood that slighted them. And so they gave themselves permission to have an out. They gave themselves permission to hold on to a grudge, to be unforgiving. And so it became tradition, and in fact, not only tradition, it became an accepted ethic of the people of God at the time of Jesus. Now, how about you and me then? Before we excuse ourselves, we're essentially the same, and, and let me try to prove it to you. Okay? Let me try to prove it to you. I think we have what I'll call a very self-centered justice and a self-centered love, or a self-referenced justice and a self-referenced love. That's what most of us day-to-day -day just naturally operate out of. Here's what I mean. See, yes, we, we want to be just people, but we want justice for anyone who is worse than us, anyone who is lazier than us, anyone who just beneath us, or, or all the, the Hitlers and just the egregious you know, criminals of the world, they deserve justice. And so we take pride, yes, I'm a just person. But if all those standards that we would apply to everyone else, if it, it now comes our turn to be on the judgment seat, we want to be exempt. 
from that same justice, do we not? If we're really honest, we want to somehow wiggle out of that. And so our definition of justice is very self-defined, self-referenced, it's self-centered. Some of us, we take pride in being loving people, just trying to be inclusive, and it's definitely uh, an undercurrent value in our culture and here in Toronto to be inclusive. But then, ironically and hypocritically, that love stops short of someone who's truly offended you. If you're truly about love and true inclusive, then, then you would have a love and a graciousness and a patience for anyone, especially those who egregiously offend you. And that's why it's a very self-centered, a self-reference love. And basically our attitude is, as the quote goes, I'll love whom I love, and I'll hate whom I hate. But if we just live by that, how does that really, does that, how does that work for conflict resolution? What happens there is that we just see ourselves in the right, everyone else is wrong, and so conflicts never get properly resolved then things build up, resentment builds up, it begins to snowball, it becomes this downward spiral, and then you come to the next fight, and there's all this past that is unresolved, and it's even harder to just focus on the, what the real issue is in the moment because of all the past and, and all this self-centered love and justice. And, and we become eventually people who are so just inept at being able to resolve conflict. We become habitually people who make mountains out of molehills. So this doesn't really work well for conflict resolution. So what's our hope then? What's our hope? Even in these short verses, approximately 10 verses, Jesus gets at our hope. And, and he's, he's going to begin to point to himself. And, and so now we need to see Jesus' justly loving heart. And so the emphasis being Christ's heart of love. Now, Jesus, he repeats his pattern of raising the standard of the law. He points to the law, and even here and now he says, but I say to you, and this is his pattern, he's about to just lift up and raise the standard of God's laws to even a more infinitely higher place. And so first, imagine the emotional journey of his listeners, okay? They've been just bombarded with four other just being cornered and realizing, oh my goodness, I thought I was okay in front of God but actually I'm so guilty. And now all the more, Jesus leans in even more. Just imagine the emotional journey of, of Jesus' listeners where there were four new and possibly higher standards. And if I was present, I would be feeling pretty small and, and defeated at this point. And so all the more, Jesus is raising the standard again. So how does Jesus raise the standard? He says, but I say to you, and here it is, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, who is he addressing? With respect to these laws that he just referenced. Remember, the, the, the law in the Old Testament, the subject was the offender and the punishment due for the offender. But now he flips it on its head and he addresses the offended. How do we know this? But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. The, the evil one is the offender, the guilty party. But now Jesus comes at it from the exact opposite direction. And whereas the law focused on punishment, now Jesus is about to focus on reconciliation. 
and he's addressing the subject is the offended one, the one who has been grieved, the one who has been hurt, the one who has been insulted. And what does he instruct? Do not resist. That word resist, it, it simply means to oppose. Whereas in the law, the people of God and really every human being, if you're insulted at work, if you were just going by the law, then you have every right to insult back equally. You had every right according to the Old Testament law. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I want you to see that Jesus, what he does now, radically, that this would have perked up the ears of his listeners who were familiar with the law, and he raises the standard from the demands of the law now to the demand for love. This is key. Remember, the law focused on the offender, the guilty party. The law focused on the just punishment. Now Jesus flips the focus on its head, and he makes the focus about how the offended should respond to the guilty party. Jesus now radically shifting the focus from punishment to reconciliation. And so he, he goes on to, to unpack this. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, and the right cheek at the time, Jesus' listeners would have known this was an idiom for the deepest insult. And this was one way to, to uh, insult someone the most deeply, to just literally go up and slap them on the cheek. And so Jesus here, when he says, turn to him the other also, let's be clear, Jesus is not saying to be a doormat. Jesus is not referring to that fourth way of conflict resolution that I referred to, self-humiliation, just, just losing yourself and becoming an abuse victim. No. So what does he mean here then to turn the other cheek? You see, as the offended one, instead of taking your right to just slap back, when you turn the other cheek, you're effectively saying, okay, there's, there must be a reason why you are trying to offend me. And I'm willing to turn my cheek to say, do I have a part in this? Did I do something to you to make you want to insult me? To make you angry at me? To be short with me? That's what turning the other cheek means. Maybe I have a part in this. This is an unnatural, supernatural, loving response. Our instinct is to counterattack with greater insults, greater blame. But turning the other cheek just in our everyday conversational language, it might, the equivalent might be, why are you upset? Help me to understand why you're lashing out right now. Help me to understand why you're so angry. I remember, and this is all credit and glory to God, I'm no way trying to make myself look all holy and, and, and Christian with this anecdote, but and it's God's grace. It, it, this happened when I came to Christ, second year university, and I was just drenched in the love of God for me. But I remember living at 4160 Young Street in a condo, and I was going down to the parking lot, downstairs garage, and going to my car to go somewhere, and there's another car parked across from me, and there was a gentleman, and then he just started yelling at me as I was walking to my car. Say, are you the owner of that car? You know what you did? It's like, no, what did I do? And he points to his 
let me get the orientation right, uh, looking at his car, the right fender, the back bumper, and it was crushed in, right? And if his car was here, and the back is here, my car was here, uh, and, and with the back facing the, the road in the parking lot, I said, I know you did this to my car. You backed out and you crushed my bumper. You're going to pay. And if it wasn't for the love of God that I was just drenched in at that time, in that season when I had just come to Christ, being filled with the Spirit, just being overwhelmed by God's grace to me, I probably would have reacted differently. But just something came over me that I can only say credit the grace of God and the Spirit of God and the fruits of the Spirit. And I just said, Sir... Calm down. <laughs> if I truly damaged your car, I will pay for it. I will pay for it. That is my word. But can you just calm down and let's think through this? And then he pointed at my bumper and said, there's a scratch. And what would be my car is looking at my car at the far corner of the bumper. And so I just started thinking, okay, let's just play this out. And I just verbalized calmly, sir, if I backed out, if anything, I would have hit your, looking at his car, left bumper. And I'm just looking at the paint. It's a different color from your car. <laughs> right? And then the strangest thing, but I shouldn't be surprised, the strangest thing happened. He just started sobbing and broke down. He said, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I'm taking it out on you. I just saw you as the first possible blame. I'm going through a divorce. That I'm not making this up. I'm going through a divorce, and I'm just so angry, and, and I saw this, and I'm so sorry. You're right. As you explain it, there's no way it could have been you. And then he even asked. He was so taken aback in that moment, like, how are you so calm? <laughs> and I was in a rush, and, and I just said, honestly, I don't know if it's going to make sense to you or not, but it's because of Jesus. <laughs> and I'm so sorry, but I, I really have to get going. But you live in the building, and I think I've seen you around. Maybe we can talk sometime. <laughs> right? Now, here's what I mean, just from my own life, and giving God all the credit. Just his, this unnatural, supernatural, loving response, that's what Christ is calling us to. That's the standard he's raising, and, and we're going to get to where does that come from? How will we do this? So here I want you to see that this is a start to the hint at the love part of Jesus' justly loving heart. Jesus is asking us to supernaturally, unnaturally respond with love. He goes on to give a few more examples, and, and I think it's worth it to unpack his examples. If anyone forces you to go one mile... The scenario that Jesus was referring to, the commentators say, most likely at the time because of Roman regime, Roman soldiers were kind of bullies and they would just force people off the street to do their bidding, to carry their heavy bags or whatnot. And so Jesus is saying here, if they force you to go one mile, again, Jesus is addressing the offended, the one who's being taken advantage of. Again, a radically opposite angle and, and focus. And if he's asking you to go one mile, Go with him two miles. And that would be the equivalent, you know, if, if you just give me permission to try to apply this to our everyday lives, that, that's the equivalent of just really listening, really trying to understand why is this person acting this way? 
and to have a, a, a goal of reconciliation and understanding. Jesus says, again, just another example. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. How are we going to give? We're going to have to have an endless resource, an ability to be generous, to be able to give and give and give. And so Jesus, he's also saying that he knows that reconciliation and true love, it always costs something. It always costs something. In fact, that's what forgiveness means in the English. Forgive, it comes in the English word, and it matches the original Greek word that is used in, in the New Testament. But forgive, that for actually means a completeness, completely giving up, completely letting it go. And the word forgiveness in the Greek, which Jesus ultimately, implicitly is getting at, it just means to let it go. Just drop it. So how are you going to do that? How are you going to demonstrate this kind of love, to give and give and give and give? For you and I, on our best days, it's, it feels near impossible. Our hearts feel so small. And so Jesus himself, even as he gives a new command for the Christ follower, but I say to you, raising the standard again, love your enemies, not hate them, as the religious leaders were saying, but you have to love your enemies. Yes, this is a command for us, but he's also getting at how we're going to do this. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. How do we become sons of our Father? How are we going to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says of, of praying for our enemies. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy. You might not physically be beside them, but Bonhoeffer is saying when you pray for your enemies, people that you're odds with, spiritually speaking, somehow you're standing right beside them and pleading for them to God. Meaning this is an act of compassion, willful compassion, and trying to understand it and to even if, when you're apart from them, beginning with prayer to want to reconcile. How are we going to do that? How are we going to do that? Michael Green, in commentating on this passage, he says, for agape, and he's pointing out the word agape because when Jesus says, love your enemies, that's the word for love he uses. And so here, it wasn't Paul who introduced this concept of agape Christian love, Jesus himself. And it wasn't a word that was commonly used for love. They were familiar with friendship love, phileo love, erotic love, uh, just uh, family love, storge love, etc. But Jesus himself here, right in the Sermon of the Mount, he introduces a radically new concept of love, agape love. And this love, as Michael Green explains well, means a love that gives itself for the good of the recipient. It means love that springs from the nature of the donor rather than from the real or fancied worthiness of the recipient. So Jesus is saying, you got to somehow find an ability to love from within yourself, your enemy, from your own nature. But how will we do that? None of us can do that, if we're honest. And so that's why we need to learn to pray, Lord, when dealing with my enemies, remind me how you've dealt with me. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 prophesies that Jesus would turn his cheek. You think of Jesus carrying his cross and going the extra mile up Calvary. 
You think of Jesus hanging on the cross and even there praying for his enemies. Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. You think of the cruel torture of crucifixion and that itself cannot silence our Lord's prayers for his enemies. This is how we're going to be able to love this way. And I said Jesus is justly loving heart. You see, Jesus on the cross, because he wants his people to love, he still had to fulfill God's justice. And Jesus honors God's justice perfectly by hanging on that cross for your sin and mine. I hope and pray that whatever conflicts you find yourself this week, that you remember this prayer and just pray this in the midst of those conversations. Lord, in dealing with my enemies, remind me how you've dealt with me. May your heart continually just be melted by this love of Christ. May you be able to just live that out in your everyday real lives. Amen.